thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. One of our favorite uh, guests, favorite filmmakers, period, is William Friedkin, and he passed away earlier today, Monday, August 7th, at the age of 87. So uh, in addition to replaying our interviews with him, uh, we thought we'd tape a little introduction and uh, share some general thoughts. When you first uh, saw the news, Adam, what did you... What went through your mind? Not again. Uh, coming so soon on the, the heels of Paul Rubens last week, it's just like these are two giant, very influential people in my life. It, it's in terms of, you know, the sharing my sensibilities or maybe helping to shape my sensibilities. And it's just uh, it's just an incredible loss. You know, I'm just so glad that he's, we've got one more film coming from him, thankfully. Uh, that's a good that's that's a blessing. But it was just, um, I mean, we knew that he was getting up there, and even he acknowledged that, you know, in some recent podcasts and whatnot. So it wasn't wasn't a total surprise. We we you you had received some information that he wasn't doing too well several years ago, but then he seemed to to bounce back and was active in uh, podcasting and interviewing and, and directing a film. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe he's got a like a cat he's got nine lives he's gonna keep going and but you know he was uh, you know it was it was inevitable but we just you know it's you're still not prepared for it you know you're still deeply saddened and um you know it's i can't imagine or i can't rather i can't remember a time when i didn't know who he was i mean even from the time when i was in the single digits uh, being a, a child growing up in a small town, you, you would see, you know, you'd comb through the newspaper ads and you would see, you know, William Freakin's The Exorcist. So, you know, you knew, uh, the, you know, who you knew the name. You were, and I was even familiar with him when Sorcerer came out. I knew who he was. I, I didn't see Sorcerer in a theater, but I remember when it came out and I remember his name being above the title and uh, just, you know, so it was, it was a name, probably one of the first filmmakers that I became acquainted with by name only, uh, you know, so there was that and he was just, and, you know, beyond the films, what a great storyteller. I mean, you know, just what a great personality. Um, just, he always brought it, yeah. brought his A game as, as you can attest, uh, with the times that he was on here and you, the interactions you had with him, he was just phenomenal. Yeah, he was great. And I just, uh, just this weekend, just yesterday, I was listening to his, re-listening to his cruising commentary, both with, uh, Mark Kermode and then by, by himself, a solo commentary on it. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, God, I just love hearing him talk about the, the movies. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And the films that shaped him as well. I mean, he could really get, uh, he could really get, you know, just uh, paint such great memories of his of himself as a child, uh, yeah. things that influenced him. I mean, you just you got a sense of what it was like when he was coming up and things that just blew his mind, you know, like ours were by his work. So, you know, yeah, as a filmmaker, he was um, he was a great uh, provocateur uh, and he was uh, unafraid uh, he kind of wore that as a, a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, no one would have, um, no one would have made uh, the Exorcist 50 years ago in the in the in the vein that Freakin made it. 
Yeah. Uh, no one would have made cruising, certainly, 40 years ago. Yeah, totally um, agree. You know, and uh, the, not the way he made it. And I think it it also, the, the, the need to kind of push boundaries and make people squirm, uh, but in the service of this kind of documentary style, this commitment to realism, which he came up from documentaries. Um, one of his earliest films was a documentary that uh, saved someone's life who was on death row, the people mm-hmm. versus, what was it, Paul Crump? Or Paul so? Crump, that's right, yeah. Uh, I mean, that was the start of his career. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you think about the highs of, you know, how would you possibly top French Connection and The Exorcist and Sorcerer? Well, how could you possibly top the very beginning of your career when your film saved a man's life? <laughs> <laughs> it's setting a bar how awfully high. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, one of his earliest big films was The Boy, The Boys in the Band, which was another groundbreaking film mm-hmm. on the heels of the, the Stonewall riots and, and, and the March for Gay Rights. And here he yeah. is making a film that's, uh, that, that's, that's gay-centric. Um, and as a heterosexual director, I'm sure that uh, that, that was a tr- tremendous challenge, and probably he was challenged on it. But yeah. uh, we did a... Um, Part of our Movie Geek Yearbook uh, series that you can find on our website, moviegeeksunited.com. Just click click on Movie Geek Yearbook. There's about a 20-minute segment on the making of Boys in the Band, and there's a lot of um, a lot of that's dedicated to the, the, the commending the bravery of uh, of William Friedkin and the sensitive touch that he had with the material, which is uh, you know sensitive. I don't know that that's often a word that's used to characterize Friedkin's movies. Uh, even though, you know, I remember watching this interview with him years ago with somebody called Mark Waters, I think was his name. He had this movie website. And you could tell Mark Waters was nervous to interview Friedkin because mm-hmm. he starts to talk to him. And he categorizes his movies as endearing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh boy. Had Friedkin cut, <laughs> Friedkin ragged him on that so much. He says, yes, I make very endearing movies. And, uh, you know, oh, here's, I saved another, he, he was very, uh, spirit, a spirited conversationalist and he did not hold back. I mean, I remember some, you know, the hundredth person asked him about Pacino not being happy with cruising and, and he was like, fuck Al Pacino. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So here's, uh, uh, let's see. Oh, here's a conversation that I have with MovieWeb that's been making the rounds. I was going to bring that up. I'm glad you did go on with that. Because uh, they were talking about uh, DVDs years ago, preserving film and that kind of thing. Yeah. And MovieWeb says, you know, according to Oliver Stone, DVDs are supposed to last 10 years. And Freakin says, how the fuck does he know? Uh, he's full <laughs> of shit. Has anyone been able to prove that yet? Where's the proof? I have DVDs that are 10 years old now. I have DVDs from 99 and 98. They still work fine. How does he know they last 10 years? And the interviewer said, I think at the time he said that, he didn't want uh, people to buy Alexander on DVD. And Friedkin finally responds with, fuck him and Alexander. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But at the same time, uh, people had great love for him, obviously fans. And I know that he felt that. In the last yeah. uh, 10, 15 years of his life, he he was very generous to um, uh, podcasters like uh, like myself and countless others. People have such 
great stories of of feeling close to him and uh, from the interviews that they did with him and and in my case I was nervous um because I his films are confrontational and so I expected the man himself to be that way and I didn't want to say anything stupid so cuz I knew that he would call me out on on some BS right away Oh yeah but he was very articulate and complimentary and generous of spirit and and insight um so he was, uh, you know, lo- lovely, lovely interview subject. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola made a comment statement today. He said, William Friedkin was my first friend among the filmmakers of my generation, and I grieve for the loss of a much-loved companion. His accomplishments in cinema are extraordinary and unique. All of his films are alive with his genius. Pick any of them out of a hat and you'll be dazzled. His lovable, irascible personality... <clears throat> was a cover for a beautiful, brilliant, deep-feeling giant of a man. It's very hard to grasp that I will never enjoy his company again, but his work will at least stand in for him. Um, yeah. And I, I tell you, I'm sure that uh, you know some of his films, Sorcerer is a prime example, uh, should be reevaluated and seen through a modern-day lens. Um, and that happened with Sorcerer. Uh, Cruising, I think it's it's started to happen with that a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And Cruising, I think, is an extraordinary movie. I think I think he made the film's flaws its strong points. Um, I think it's very ballsy, and it's got mm-hmm. ball, a lot of balls in it. Uh, but uh, yeah. Um, but what other movies do you think need to be looked at again from his oh resume? Oh my gosh. Uh... Well, you know, Killer Joe is a is a late career favorite of mine. I think that it was amazing that he was in his late seventies at that point and he could make a film that was that potent. Um, just that was just revelatory to me uh, that he could be so, um, uh, you know, um, current with <laughs> with it. I guess I'm I'm scumfering for words here, but you know, he was. Uh, uh, it just seemed contemporary, you know. It it, it seemed um, didn't seem like it was made by a man of his age, and so I just was, you know, that that was one of the ones that uh, that I always thought. Uh, but there were peaks. I mean, he would, you know, it's hard to top the the films of his prime period in the seventies, but but he had an interesting career in that. I mean, he made few films. Mm-hmm. In the course of his life, he he made, I don't know, maybe 17 or 18 films. Yeah. But um, but there were peaks in, in each kind of stage of his career. So, you know, he gets off the 70s, and then he makes To Live and Die in L.A., which is one of the best films of the 80s of that yeah, genre. Bring that up, too. Yeah, a newly released, you know, in a 4K addition that supposedly he i think he was uh, involved in the overseeing the transfer i think i think um and then he comes back with bug and everybody's like oh my god freaking back again and then he comes back with killer joe um yeah so yeah he had an interesting career and uh yeah and those tv movies are good i think those uh uh, inherit the wind and 12 angry men he brought something uh to the, I mean, you know, those were classic films, but he brought his own sensibilities and style to that material, I think, and I enjoy both of those. I think those are films that people don't talk 
about as much in his pantheon of work. And um, I, I think uh, they should not be overlooked. And I think, and he was very proud of them. I've heard him talk about them many times uh, about him, uh, his pride with those uh, television films that he did. I think they were done for Showtime, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, and they are good for anybody who's uh, not seen them. And they're, they're, uh, I would say seek them out. Uh, to to see uh, what he could do on the small small screen as well, and I, I think it's very fitting that you know or interesting that you know Bill Butler, the uh, cinematographer, he kind of gave Bill Butler his first break because uh, they were working together at uh, WGN, I believe it was in Chicago when he was doing the documentary on Paul Crump, and we lost Bill Butler earlier this year too, hmm. and Butler had no idea that he was going to become a cinematographer. That wasn't, uh, he was just, uh, you know, working at the TV station and he needed a cameraman. And so he uh, asked him if he would help out. And then that led to a whole other uh, career for Bill Butler. So I think it's fitting that they both, you know, that they both passed in the same calendar year uh, because that's, they started together, you know. And, um, well, and I've, I've, I'd been reading too that he employed a camera operator. On French Connection, I think they worked on several movies together, but this camera yeah. operator came from right. war, war photography. You know, yeah. he he was used to shooting revol- revolutions happening in foreign countries. So he had, uh, much like Richardson, early Richardson, because Richardson was a war photographer as well, he had no trepidation about getting right in there in the action. And that oh, was, right. yeah. that was the thing about, I think if, if you talk about what separates Friedkin from, his contemporaries who who made similarly classic films back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. I mean, Copeland, Scorsese uh, among them. I think the thing that uh, distinguishes Friedkin is his sense of danger. There's a sense of sense of danger in the th- the themes he chooses to explore, in the methods he uses to explore them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's uh, that's valuable, and that's so emblematic of the, the kind of the, the the free spirit of that time of filmmaking too. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Yeah, and you know his films have a certain documentary feel too. I think that comes from his you know his background. That's where he started, and he always brought that that feel uh, that he employed in his earlier films. He he brought that to his narrative films as well, which I always thought was an interesting approach to the material. And I guess now that I'm thinking about it, Owen, Owen Roisman, whom he collaborated with quite a bit, he passed this year too. So that's, yeah, I just now thought about that, uh, who famously shot the exorcist and uh, French connection. So yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Just all in one year. That's something. Yeah. Um, uh, I invited him. We spoke to him twice on the show. I invited him back. Uh, for the boys in the band segment that that I produced, mm-hmm. and um, that was the last time I reached out to him. This was in 2020, and uh, his uh, assistant responded <coughs> that he that he would like to do it, but he's not up to it. He's had some health problems the last few months, so. I mean, it could have been a cold, uh, but uh, might be totally unrelated. But uh, I think the last few years he probably was declining in health, and he um, managed to get off one more movie uh, that will be um, 
premiered at Venice next month, right? The K-Mutiny Court Martial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. And uh, Lance Riddick is in that. He passed away as well, so uh, so there's that too. Yeah. Um, and and there were some things that he would say, and I've said this before on the show, when he says that he never set out to, he wasn't making a horror film when he made The Exorcist, and that I always thought, you know, you were out to scare the shit out of people. There's no way you could see that movie and think the the objective was not that. I mean, there <laughs> there could yeah. there could be other considerations, as obviously there were. Um, so uh, yeah, but I, but at the same time, I mean, he there's no there's no winking in The Exorcist, and maybe the fact that he he didn't feel like he was making a horror movie is what makes that movie so scary. Yeah, is is the fact that he's very earnest about presenting the horror in that in that situation it's not like okay we're out to like you're you're winking at the audience and am i giving you a good time am i giving you a good scare like there's 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 no moment like that that relieves that tension Mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's true that's true well it definitely you know it, it's unlike it was unlike any horror film that had been uh up to that time and really unlike anything since then because you know because of his uh, technique you know he brought something certainly unique and i i find it very uh, fitting that he dies in the uh, the 50th year where we're celebrating the 50th anniversary and we're on the cusp of getting a 4k release of the exorcist next month on four you know 4k and, disc yeah. I, that's um, and a new trilogy of movies and, right and a new trilogy of movies that's true so yeah, yeah uh, the exorcist has, has survived for 50 years i mean and i can't imagine yeah. a film being released today that oh, uh, God, requ- no. requires the theater uh, ushers to carry smelling salts with them yeah <laughs> that's true that's a good point uh, i mean could you imagine audiences being that yeah. scandalized and emotionally distraught yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, to say that he's irreplaceable, that's an old cliche, but it's so true. Um, you know, he, and, and there's great documentaries. Uh, yes. Yeah. That he did, that he's not, that he didn't direct where other, he's the subject of, of them. I want to mention that to other people too. There's a freaking uncut. Uh huh. And there is, um, uh, what is, is the, for the, uh, the, the power of God, the, the, the freaking and the, uh, the Exorcist or something like that. Yeah. And that one snuck up on me because I thought that I had seen every and knew there everything, everything there was to know about The Exorcist. And I've seen the BBC docs. I've seen all the extras on the you know the discs. Uh, there's nothing new here. And I went into it kind of you know jaded a little bit. And man, that was great. That was fantastic. That was yeah. one of my favorite films of its year. I think it was like 2020 or something. But it was really, really good. He, there was a lot of stuff that had uh, that just hadn't been covered, or or he just didn't go quite as in depth. But man, if you're a, a fan of William Friedkin or The Exorcist, that is a great. Yeah, it is a good movie. So uh, yeah, that's and the Friedkin uncut, obviously too. Um, mm-hmm. There's no shortage of interviews with him out there because he was very. Uh, Generous with his time with fans, and uh, yeah. I read this one story that someone wrote a big piece on Sorcerer a few years ago, and 
William Friedkin out of the blue called the writer and they spent like three hours talking. Oh wow! He was like, it was, it was like I was so shocked. He was, <laughs> he just called me and we just laughed and told stories <laughs> and it's just wonderful to think about. <laughs> And of course, there's that great interview with Nicholas Winding Refn. Uh, that yes. is terrific. Yes. Let's let's not. Uh, Refn says that, that only God forgives his movie is a masterpiece, and William Friedkin just cannot stop giving him shit. <laughs> <laughs> Can we get a doctor in here? Yes, that's great. Oh my God, yeah, that is great. I uh, I watched that uh, a while back, and man, I was just laughing all the way through it. I thought, man, he, he suffers no fools. Yeah. We will miss him for sure, but I'm so glad we have his great body of work to. Uh, and I, and you know another thing too, I'm so glad that he lived long enough to see the uh, re- appreciation for Sorcerer because I think he was really, really depressed and in a funk uh, because of the failure of yeah. it at the time of its release, and it was very, uh, a very uh, terrible thing that he had to go through emotionally with the failure of that film, and uh, for him to live long enough to see it appreciated as the classic that it is mm-hmm. that's great uh, and I'm just so to feel the appreciation happened. for him in general right that too yes. yeah um so the uh, first interview that we uh, that we conducted i did it solo with freakin 2012 it's a career you know we hit a lot of uh, points of his career and his thought on this thoughts on the 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 uh, state of uh, modern movies to working with Morcone to his thoughts on Stanley Kubrick and and his other work, including movies that w- were rarely discussed with him, movies like Rampage. Uh, I know we talked about a bit. Um, and then the second interview was a year later uh, in uh, promotion for his uh, autobiography, which was great. It is. It's and great. so we hear some uh, more stories in that interview. Um so enjoy. We're going to play them back to back now. Uh, he was one of our favorites. I loved him. I went from petrified of him to, hey, can we talk again sometime? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> and he was generous enough to let us do it. So the next two hours, enjoy these uh, interview replays. And thank you, Adam, for joining us for this. Oh, my pleasure. Hi, Mr. Freakin. Hey, Jamie. How you doing? How are you, sir? Good. You can call me Bill or Billy. Okay. I, I really appreciate your time. This is a great honor to uh, have an opportunity to speak to you. No, it's my pleasure. So you guys are united, huh? United to do what? Take over the world? Or... United to, to to celebrate cinema. That's what we're all about. Well, that's a very noble ideal, and I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate because you. Your, your films have made... need saving now, Jamie. Well, that's part of what I want to talk to you about, uh, about film as it is today, because when I, when I think of you and your work and the work of so many other directors that I greatly admire, uh, they seem to, be, to, to play a key role in the, the film culture of the time. We really seem to have a, a film culture then. Do, do you sense any of that remaining today? Well, it's different. You know, the zeitgeist was different in the 70s. Um, It was starting to change in the 60s when I started to make films. But by the 70s, it it had definitely changed. And then it went through, um, you know, a a number of transformations to where it is today, which is 
largely um, a vehicle, I'm talking about cinema, is largely a vehicle for comic books and uh, video games and um, old television shows and stuff. And even the European films, which so influenced my generation, are are certainly... um, I don't see too many masterpieces coming out of Europe today either. Mm. So, but this happens. I mean, the culture was quite different and not all that bad when I started making films. And many of my um, colleagues and I, you know, we, we couldn't wait for the next film by the French New Wave or the Italian neorealists or Kurosawa and some of the other Japanese directors and now, <clears throat> I, I find myself really um, not um, not in sync with with uh, what is popular in this country. I feel the same way, and I've I've spoken to many people about this, including um, I mean, years ago I, I had a conversation with Paul Schrader, and he was talking about how he believes that cinema uh, going to the movies are, are, is going to be relegated to you know being a theme park experience. Um, and then I that's think of the pretty f- much what it is, but that's the new generation. I, I have to tell you, I honestly don't uh, bemoan it. It just is the way it is, and mm. I think the entire culture has gone that way. Not just films, you know, uh, the, the kind of paintings that are appreciated today, and the, this kind of music, popular music. Is, there's been a vast deterioration. To, to anyone that's ever experienced anything else. Um, but, you know, for example, you can't expect uh, people to continue painting like Rembrandt or Vermeer, or let's say to turning out popular music like Cole Porter and the Gershwins. Mm-hmm. Th- there's going to be a vast sea change for every generation in all the arts. And there is one now. In, in cinema, without a doubt. Now, only time will tell whether this is um, just sour grapes or w- whether it, in fact, represents a deterioration of the culture. Uh, you know, the inevitable outgrowth of what came before. Well, that's kind of what worries me, because I, I, think, I think of the films you did... Uh, you know, pick a filmmaker from that period of time when you were coming up, uh, Altman, Scorsese, you know, just pick one. And and a lot of their works uh, were, even if they were subversive, they they dealt with kind of social commentary. Uh, And I think that the movies of today might reflect an apathy that is troubling to me. There is an apathy. You know, you have to look at the late 60s and the Vietnam protests. And, you know, I, I was in Chicago uh, in 68, you know, the convention mm-hmm. um, where uh, Humphrey had been nominated to become the, dem- to be the Democratic nominee. And the kids, you know, mostly led by young people, were all in, in the park protesting uh, the war. And for a few years before that. Now I think we're in wars every bit as stupid, if not more so, than uh, Vietnam was. It's been a continuation of stupid Mm -hmm. wars that have ground up our young people, 
you know, while these old dudes sit up there in Washington and, and eat uh, $300 uh, martini lunches and, and screw up the economy. But there's nobody in the streets. Mm-hmm. And the people that are in the streets seem to me to be more or less just hell raisers, you know, n- not people with a legitimate uh, sense of protest. So that's changed. Yes, there is an apathy. In the 60s, uh, what was going on today, uh, the attack on Iraq, uh, the uh, war in Afghanistan, um, all of that would be wildly protested. Uh, And now, I don't know, maybe it's the drug culture that kicked in. Most of the people are apathetic. Uh, you just where are you, by the way? What, what what part of the country are you in? I'm actually in Florida at the moment. Okay, well, here in California, the legislature has so messed up the mm-hmm. state's economy that public education, as we know it now, is doomed. You know, there's no money in this state, and yet a lot of taxes were collected. But they went to graft, corruption, cronyism. They didn't go to the schools or to fix the roads or to make uh, the state safer. Uh, I don't know where they went, uh, where this money went. And mm. there, there is a vast uh, layer of corruption over um, most of the states and the country itself, and very few people speaking out against it. In fact... They, the the journalists uh, uh, of this state and this country seem to be narcotized. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if cinema can do anything about that. I, I think it's, um, it's just headed on a different path, which I find uh, to be very sad, very sad. Look at the generation of young people that have been ruined by participating in these horrible wars that have gotten us nowhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, the last um, uh, war that meant anything was World War II. And, you know, it was, it was a just and righteous war, and I think the outcome uh, was, um, was good. After that, we, we've squandered the, the human and natural and financial resources of this country. But I don't see that in the movies anywhere. I see the mm-hmm. celebration of all that. And, of course, there were troubled times in past decades, including the greatest decades for film, um, <clears throat> because the artists reflected and, and kind of commented on the times that we were living in. And I see the world of today, and I think, well, it, it's more important than ever for artists to, to, to feel that uh, uh, c- connection to the to the world and express it. Yeah, but you don't see it in cinema. No, you know, um, you had a different kind of. To just stay with film, you had different um, th- kinds of filmmakers who were motivated l- largely by uh, literature and and their own life experiences. And today they're motivated by uh, old television shows, video games, and comic books. Right, and I look. I enjoyed comic books when I was a kid, but that wasn't the steady diet of movies that we had. Well, I think about the the artists, the great artists that inspired you, 
Um, and it, it's something that always strikes me as curious about where people draw their inspirations. I mean, you you were inspired by, you know, I'm sure, Wells, Hitchcock, the French New Wave, all of those giants. But was there a moment when you felt that you transcended those inspirations and found your own unique voice? No. I mean, the the thing that keeps me going, the the reason I keep making films is because one of the major reasons, because I know that the audience that I once had is not out there anymore. But what keeps me going is I haven't made a film anywhere near as good as Citizen Kane or, let's say, for example, Psycho or m- many others. And, you know, I, I still cling to the delusion that as long as I am able to keep at it, Maybe one day, you know. But no, I mean, there to me, there are four people that really changed uh, cinema. First was Griffith. Griffith mm-hmm. set the whole style and tone for the kind of cinema that was was then um, made in in America and attempted throughout the world. And then in and that was in basically in the silent era. The next person who changed cinema was Orson Welles with Citizen Kane. He synthesized everything that had gone before, and he pointed the way to where film could go. And then it was Jean-Luc Godard with Breathless, which is still echoing throughout the uh, zeitgeist. Uh, More film, more television, as well as films, are made... Uh, closer to breathless than anything else. The jump mm-hmm. cuts, uh, the kind of uh, loosey-goosey style, um, anything goes. It, it was kind of uh, like modern art, changed uh, changed to painting. And then finally, I, I think the last real change was 1977, Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And the Star Wars reverberation continues today. You know that that's the most influential film I would say of my time, and that's where it is today. Uh, possibly something will come along, who knows when, and and change it again with the new media that's come on. You know. Did you feel when, when Star Wars did come out in '77? I mean, you you were you you were coming off of The Exorcist and The French Connection and. And uh, you were tackling Sorcerer, I believe. Did you feel that sea change at that time? I mean, was it evident? Soon after, you know, not immediately. It, it was. Um, it, it was a film that um, really captured uh, the enthusiasm of, of people of all ages, and uh, that it would have a wider impact. No, I, I didn't. Uh, feel that, but soon after you could see that that was the direction that all the major studios wanted wanted to head in, and that's where they are now. They're just still doing Star Wars, only with better technology. Mm-hmm. I-, I wanted to ask you a question about, and I guess it relates to cinema today, about the type of material that you are attracted to. Do you find it more difficult to find something that really turns you on enough to, to invest your well, time and talent in? Jamie, you know, I think I've only made 15 or 16 films. In, mm-hmm. I don't know, 
at least 45 years of doing it. Um, and it's not for lack of trying. There are very few things that really interest me. Um, you know, I've directed a lot of operas over the last um, 14 years now. I've directed uh, about 14 operas and mm. all over the world. And that's a fascinating new challenge for me. But, no, I don't see a lot of things, or, or nor do I get a lot of ideas that I think I could get financed. You know, it's not simply what a filmmaker would like to do. It's who's going to finance it. It was put best by uh, a dear old friend of mine who, who's now passed away, Sammy Kahn, the lyricist. Have you ever heard mm -hmm. of him? Yes, sir. You know, Sammy Kahn was one of the great lyricists. He wrote uh, uh, Come Fly With Me. He wrote, uh, you know, I don't know, 50 or more hits, many of them for Frank Sinatra. And he once, he was often asked, um, what comes first, the music or the lyrics? And his answer was always the phone call. <laughs> and that's really where it's at. You know, the phone call standing in for the financer, the guy, some guy who wanted a song written. That's how it used to work. Um, a publishing company or a particular artist would want to, want a love song or an up-tempo song or whatever, and Sammy and his uh, writing partners would come up with the song. Mm. Um, and they became classics. They became standards. Uh, today, you know, that phone call doesn't come around too often. There are only a handful of people, I think, and I can't even name them, who could make exactly what they want to make. I mean, you take even the great American filmmakers of today. They have to make films whose primary aim is to is to make money. Now there's nothing wrong with that. You know, film is a commercial medium. Um, popular uh, Hollywood film. It's a commercial medium. No one ever called it show art. You know, mm -hmm. it's show business. <laughs> and so even the great filmmakers who are around have got to try and do something that a lot of people want to see, or they're not going to be able to make films. And well, look, frankly, there's not a lot of things that that I think would work that interest me for today's audience. But even so, I mean, it's it, it's obvious that in in Tracy Letts in his work. You've you found someone simpatico uh, with you. What what is it about his particular voice that that you identify with so much? Well, he and I, I guess, share the same worldview. You know, we are fascinated by these characters who live sort of uh, desperate lives with their backs against the wall. They contain equal parts of good and evil. They embody e equal parts of good and evil. There are no heroes. Uh, you know, I, I could cite many more examples of how we we see the world, not with rose-colored glasses. Mm -hmm. He also happens to be, you know, a, a really first-rate um, dramatist, uh, not just my opinion. You know, he's won the Pulitzer Prize and for drama and the Tony Award. He has a terrific, unique contemporary voice. Um 
he was out here in Hollywood for, I think, six years or so. I didn't know him then, but he couldn't get a job. He couldn't get a script assignment, and he tried to be an actor. He's now a very successful actor. Uh, you know, he's going to star in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway this mm. fall. And uh, he was out here for six, seven years trying to work as an actor, a writer. He couldn't even get a meeting. He couldn't get on uh, on the love boat. And so he went back to Chicago, which has become the most important theatrical city in America in terms of originating the new drama. And uh, he's flourished there. And and um, I haven't... Well, I directed one of his plays, too, uh, here in uh, Orange County at the South Coast Rep. I directed his play, The Man from Nebraska. So I've done uh, three of his pieces, two on film. Um, and he hasn't done that many more. I, I don't know how many... I think he's only written five or six plays. But... Um, I've liked the other two as well, but it's not like I'm I'm just looking to do uh, uh, to adapt plays by Tracy Letts. But I think he's a great uh, writer today. He's as good as there is in this country. Well, when I, when I think about your work and Killer Joe definitely is included in this, I, I think of characteristics like uh, they're surprising, uh, they're a, a little bit dangerous. And there's a streak of ambiguity that that runs across many of the themes and characters. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Well, life is ambiguous, Jamie. You know, we don't yeah. know the ending. We certainly don't know the beginning. Um, there are just great mysteries surrounding us, and you know, um, one of the things that interested me the most around the time I made The Exorcist was the mystery of faith. You know, what it is and why and how deep are people's beliefs. And uh, it's still that still fascinates me. Mm -hmm. um, there are other mysteries. Of course, all, everything around us is a mystery. We have nothing to say about when or to whom or how we're born. Nothing to say about how we're going to leave this uh, veil um, but also love is a mystery you know why two people can meet and fall in love and somebody else can meet the same people and not even notice them mm -hmm. uh, birth is a mystery there are all these great mysteries nothing seems to be resolved and so why should drama wrap everything up in a neat package when you know it, it it's not a neat package what fascinates me enormously even as i get older uh but uh, since and even before the exorcist was here was this man this young jewish man in his early 30s walking around the diaspora a very small part of the world in the middle east and he he would preach in the street and on hillsides and in synagogues and to very small venues. And he died, I guess, at the age of 32 or 33 after having preached only three years that we're aware of. And he walked around in a robe and sandals, mostly mm -hmm. in the desert and 
begged his food. If anyone had told you then that that, you know, that trillions of people would believe in this man as as um, a deity, that you, they would have said you were crazy. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. trillions of people have this belief. That's what interests me the most. Not only the story of Jesus, but Buddha and Muhammad, you know, and Moses. Um, th- this mystery of faith. And then the opposite of that, uh, Adolf Hitler. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. really a, a homeless um, tramp who had been, who was uh, unemployed, begging for money in the streets of Vienna. And uh, it was a guy you wouldn't look at twice. And then an entire race of the most intelligent people on earth followed this imbecile into hell. Mm-hmm. You know, those those are the great mysteries that that uh, I still think about it and read about and talk about. Well, that that ambiguity that you talk about, I, I love that in film as well, and. And, and not only for the reasons that you've just articulated, but you know, the past couple of years, uh, we've been studying on the show uh, the, the films of Kubrick, and we've brought on about 60 of his collaborators. And, and the one thread that keeps coming up is, is the ambiguity of his work. And I find that what that does is you can watch a Kubrick movie at the age of 20. It can mean one thing, and then it kind of redefines itself when you watch right. it years later because you are different. You're bringing something different to it. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I continue to watch Paths of Glory in 2001, Dr. Strangelove, and The Killing. Mm-hmm. Those are the, the four uh, Kubrick films that, um, that have resonated uh, the, the most with me, uh, but I, I just I thought his work his work was a revelation when we saw it. I think the first thing I saw was the killing, and it's one of the great you know genre films. It, it's a B picture, but it transcends that. Mm-hmm. And then you know two thousand. It's hard to believe, but two thousand one w- was um, heavily criticized, if, if not ridiculed in its day by the critics. But it it influenced a whole generation of young people. I didn't list that as one of the films that changed cinema, but you know, in in many ways it did. But but things didn't go that way. Things mm-hmm. didn't go toward the mysteries of life or the ambiguity. They went the opposite way. Yeah. Um, but two thousand one is the the most ambiguous of all films. And the films that resonate with me are films like that where at the end of the film, it's left with you. It's left with the audience to make of it what you will. In many ways, The Exorcist was that, too. I'm not talking about the quality of The Exorcist versus 2001, but what peop- I found that what people brought to that film, to The Exorcist, is what they took away from it. If you believe that the world was a, a dark and evil place, you know, where little children were were mysteriously destroyed from within, um, that's what you took away from The Exorcist. If, on the other hand, you thought that there was 
a force for good, uh, constantly at war with the darker forces within us, and that sometimes they would triumph, not always, but sometimes, that's what you took away from the film. The same mm-hmm. with 2001. You know, what is that slab? You know, to, to many people, the obelisk has no meaning, or it's just confusing. To me, it's the most profound <laughs> statement of the mystery of faith I've ever seen in a film. Yeah. And the mystery well, you... of of a kind of a divine presence in our lives that we we are not meant to understand. It's the most seriously agnostic film I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Agnosticism being, you know, the, a belief that the power of God and the soul are unknowable. Not that they don't exist, but that they are unknowable. And I think that, to me, is the ultimate message of 2001. I think so too, and, and and I see it in The Exorcist as well. I mean, you, uh, you, you always talk about The Exorcist as as an exploration of the mystery of faith, as you just have. But I'm wondering, as as your you've lived your life since The Exorcist, and and your faith and understanding of things has evolved. Do you think, if you were to make The Exorcist today, that you would have made it in any way different? You couldn't make The Exorcist today the way I made it. It would have to be ludicrous, the way all of these Exorcist sequels and rip-offs have been. Mm-hmm. You know, they you'd have to escalate all the special effects. It would all have to be so wildly supernatural and without any kind of realistic base to, to even get considered today. Mm-hmm. No, you couldn't... Even though the film, as you probably know, remains enormously popular and is continuing to be seen by, you know, vast hordes of people all over the world. One of the reasons for that is we, we've, with Warner Brothers, we've kept it alive. You know, we, we've made versions of the film that look like the film was made yesterday. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing dated about it. But the idea of the story itself, the way Blatty wrote it, and and the way I interpreted it, no, you couldn't do that today. It would have to be, you know, complete bullshit, Mm -hmm. which is what these films are. They they are not made by people who uh, are are exploring uh, uh, the the idea of of a faith-based society. They're just made to to rip people off and and sell tickets. You couldn't make it today, no. I I don't think you could either. But but what interests me, what interests me is 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 a director such as yourself, your relationship with your previous work. Because I, I suppose one way to look at it would be, I look at the, you look at The Exorcist and you think that's where I was at that point of my life. That's like a marker of who I was then. Do you feel that you're? Do you still feel that you completely relate to the William Friedkin that made The Exorcist at that time? Are you still in that same place? Oh sure. You know, I, I mean, that that's an omega point uh, of a story like The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it it isn't something that once you reach that point, you you then back away. 
or or transcend it. No, my interests remain the same. Um, I, I believe, because I know so much about the actual case on which this film is based, I know that something happened in that case that was either... Um, how can I put this? It was either mass hallucination or something transcendent that occurred. Mm-hmm. There were in the twentieth century there were only three cases uh known that the Catholic Church had authenticated as demonic possession in this country. Now today around the world you have guys who claim to be exorcists or priests or whatever and many of them do two or three exorcisms before breakfast, you know. And there's a guy in the Vatican who is the Vatican's official exorcist. His name is Father Gabriel Amorth, A-M-O-R-T-H. And he claims to have done thousands of exorcisms. And to me, he just gives exorcism a bad name. I think there were very few. I think in our time... I think to a great extent, obviously I wasn't around uh, during the 1949 case, but possibly there are other solutions to the affliction of that young man then who was 14 years old. He's still alive today with no memory of what happened to him. And, uh, you know, the church through the uh, Jesuit diocese in, in the Washington area still keeps an eye on him because he lives back in that area. And uh, clearly, from my reading of the files of the case, which were given to me by uh, the pres- uh, Father Henley, who was the president of Georgetown, Father Robert Henley, um, one day he sat me down and let me read the files, which included the diaries of the doctors and the nurses as well as the priests who were involved in that case, it was clear to me that something transcendent had occurred. And Mm -hmm. I don't know whether you ever saw the Washington Post front-page article about that case in 1949. Have you ever seen that? I haven't, no. You can Google it. It's out there. It's written by a reporter who was on the Washington Post called Bill Brinkley. It's a front-page article that runs for almost, I think, over two full pages. And it describes this incident in 1949 in the Silver Spring, Maryland area, which Brinkley refers to as uh, a case of demonic possession that was, in fact, cured by uh, this lengthy exorcism as performed by the church. And it's very rare to see something like that given credibility on the front page of a major uh, American newspaper. You know, that wasn't the Inquirer. Bill Brinkley later went on and became a very successful novelist. He wrote uh, a comic novel called Don't Go Near the Water, which became a film. Uh, But laid out in this newspaper on the front page, the upper left-hand column is where it starts with a big headline, is a description of that case. Wow. And that and the diaries and other things that I've been privy to have, convi- you know, have deepened 
my my faith. But I, I don't have any ultimate conclusions because I, I'm not Catholic. I, I believe that the organi- organized religion is basically pretty far from the teachings of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I mentioned a guy who walked around in, in, in a robe and sandals, and now you see, you know, the... The, the fathers of, of the church wearing costumes and, you know, gold-plated uh, uh, silver, you know, they eat off um, fine china and they drink great wine and they own banks and they own real estate and and it looks like a lot of dress-up, you know, and it it's just not what I perceive as the teachings of Jesus, but... You know, God moves in mysterious ways, as they say. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. Uh, I, I have to ask you uh, about this particular film because when I when I announced to our uh, many of our listeners that we were going to welcome you on the show, uh, the overwhelming majority of them wanted to know about Sorcerer, uh, and, and I understand this is your most requested film. It's a very strange thing that's happened to Sorcerer. As a matter of fact, I think the first um, uh, point in the legal case that I brought against um, Paramount Universal, uh, the first response is today. And I'll know either today or tomorrow uh, how this will be continued. But for many years, both Paramount and Universal allowed the film to be Shown. It's still available on a very bad um, uh, uh, videotape, yeah, uh, and, a, and an old VHS, which I didn't make. It's the only one of my films that went to DVD or Blu-ray that I had nothing to do with. They just sort of snuck it under the radar. And but for many years, both studios that had financed it. Um, had made it available to film societies and universities and uh, all over the world. As recently as last year, the American Cinematheque had a retrospective of my films, and, you know, it was a huge success here. And um, they ran Sorcerer. They made a, Paramount made a new print of Sorcerer last year. And then all of a sudden, these requests, were denied by both studios. And they both claimed that they didn't know who owned the picture. Mm. They had no record of whether Paramount owned any rights or Universal. Uh, and none of these film societies could, uh, or schools could get it anymore. By the way, this has happened to a number of other films, such as Blade Runner, and uh, uh, White Dawn that Phil Kaufman had made, many others. And it appears, I mean, they wrote to us saying, we don't know who owns the film, we don't anymore, we can't say who does. Now, I understand that the film was put into a joint corporation that Paramount and Universal had formed a number of years ago, well, you know, over 30 years ago, they formed a company called CIC, Cinema Inter- International Corporation, that was set up for the purpose of um, 
of jointly distributing Paramount and Universal's properties overseas. They were not licensed to do business in the United States, CIC, only, you know, Europe, Latin America, and elsewhere. And uh, that company has long since folded. And um, so there's that development, and there's the fact that the studios want to erase all... Um, memory of 35-millimeter film. They mm -hmm. want to convert to the new media as quickly as possible. That is, DVD, Blu-ray, or whatever is going to very soon follow it. Um, and so, and Eastman Kodak no longer makes 35-millimeter stock. So within two years, nothing will be shot on 35, and, you know, you'll only be able to see it in, in uh, revival houses and the prints will all be very bad because there's nobody around who cares about, you know, film preservation, really. And uh, so I sued Paramount and Universal to determine the ownership of the rights. And their response is due today. Uh, and they ha we've asked them to produce every imaginable document pertaining to Sorcerer. And... My personal belief is that they don't have them. Mm. That what they've done is, is what the studios have always done, uh, is destroy their legacy. They don't really want you or people to see an old movie. They want you to see a new movie. Uh, they were, they've stopped being cooperative with film societies, with rare exception. I mean, Warner Brothers will still make all of their stuff available to, to, you know, legitimate uh, film societies and universities. But Paramount and Universal have started a process to eliminate all of that, and Sorcerer fell between the cracks there. So I'm trying to determine uh, uh, ownership. And, you know, uh, it may well be that I own the film, in which case I will make it available to anybody, you know, any legitimate organization that wants to run it. It's a very unique and original suit, but they are claiming they don't know who owns the rights. Now, there's a bunch of young lawyers at all the studios now who really have no memory of the studio's past, and w what they largely do is after a a certain time period, they destroy all the files. So they may not know who owns it. But they did as of last year, when they had this enormously successful run of it at the Cinematheque. And I was there. I did a Q&A, and they had lines around the block to see it. There's a group here called Cinefamily, mm -hmm. uh, a group of you know film lovers like yourself and, uh, and others. Um, they requested it, and that's how this came up. The studio sent them emails saying, we have no idea who owns this, and we don't. And that's what provoked my legal action against both studios. And all we we're asking for, we're not asking for money from these studios. We're just asking for you know, the right to keep the film in circulation to those who want to see it. Well, yeah, you're trying to save your film, and and I, I would imagine that the ultimate goal would be would it be a Blu-ray release so everyone can have access to yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. And I said in my loss, I've said 
this is not about money. If I receive any money uh, as a result of obtaining the rights to Sorcerer, I will donate it to film uh, restoration and preservation. Mm-hmm. Every dime. Mm. So I just want the film seen. Do you? I'm, I'm curious to know because Sorcerer was an incredibly ambitious film uh, for you. Um, and it's grown in stature as the years have gone by. Uh, but when it was first released and it, it didn't, it didn't really perform as well as I'm sure you had hoped. Uh, how did you, how did you take to that? How did, how did that affect you? Jamie, let, let me try and explain this to you. When you say didn't perform as well as I hoped, I thought that I made the film as well as I could. Mm-hmm. Roy Scheider, who was the lead, and even the other cast, with the exception of a young Moroccan actor named Amadou, who was my first choice, none of them were, were the, my first choices. The script was written for Steve McQueen, and Steve McQueen loved it and wanted to do it, but he had just married Ali McGraw, and they were very close, and he wanted me to write a role in for Ali McGraw. And he had told me that it was the, you know, the best script that he had read. And could I write a part in there for Ali? And I said, gee, Steve, you, I mean, you just told me it's the best script you ever read. There really is no major role for a woman. I'd have to change the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And he said, all right, all right. He said, are you going to shoot it in this country? And I said, no, I found some fantastic locations where I want to shoot it. Very primitive and uh, rugged locations. He said, well, you could find that here in the United States. He said, because I can't, you know, I don't want to be away from alleys. I said, well, I'm not going to shoot it in the United States, except for one sequence. And, um, uh, and then he said, well, okay, make her the associate producer or something. And I was really arrogant at that time, possibly only a little bit less so now. But um, uh, I said, no, I don't believe in that credit, associate producer. Mm-hmm. I just don't believe in it, and I'm not going to do it. And I, I, I was an idiot. Uh, I didn't realize then what I've come to realize, that a close shot of Steve McQueen you know, is worth the most beautiful landscape you can photograph. And I, I, if, it, if it, the same situation occurred today, I would do whatever I had to do to get McQueen into that film. Because if I had McQueen, then Marcello Mastroianni would have signed on to one of the other parts. And Lino Ventura, who was a great French star, one of the best film actors ever. And they would not take second or third billing to Roy Scheider. Now, I think Roy was great in the film. I really do. But Roy was not a movie star, and I think the film needed that. On the other hand, I'm happy with the film, Jamie. I love the film. Uh, Despite the fact that it was a financial failure and that the critics mostly, you know, dumped all over it, the film works for me. 
Now, I don't compare this in any way to, let's say, the work of some of the great artists in the past who got no recognition. But you take Vincent van Gogh, who had made over well over 3,000 works of art in 10 years and never sold one, mm-hmm. never sold a painting, but he continued to paint. And now you can't buy a, a, a Van Gogh, you know, for less than 10 or $20 million. And Van Gogh never made any money on his films, but he continued to paint. I have not ever thought about simply making films to make money. Now, I realize you're better off if your films do make money in that they hopefully appeal to a wide audience, and they they bring back the investment to the bankers. But I'm not a banker, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've really been blessed by the fact that I was able to make films. I never went to college. I never went to film school. I've never really had a lesson in film. And I've made about 15 or 16 films. Some of them I like. Some of them I don't. Some of them I think work. And when I say work, I mean for me. I can't put myself into the into the mind's eye of other people, Jamie. I know who who uh, love and revere Sorcerer, and I, I'm very grateful for that. But if I hated it, it would mean nothing to me. Well, I, I didn't I didn't mean to be at all dismissive when what I said it oh, didn't you perform. No, it's I'm... a it's a le- it's a legitimate question when I tried to answer it as honestly as I can. No, I understand, but it, it actually it mirrors what we discussed with 2001. Uh, I mean, as the years went on, people recognized I misunderstood that movie, and they looked back at it and they thought, well, this is a masterwork. And I feel that the same thing has happened to Sorcerer. Well, 2001 is a masterpiece. People just didn't recognize it at the exactly. time. Exactly. Because they didn't recognize Vermeer's view of Delft. You know, are you familiar with Vermeer and the view of Delft? I'm sorry to say I'm not, no, sir. Well, Johannes Vermeer is perhaps one of the greatest artists who ever lived. He lived in, in the 17th century in a little town called Delft in the Netherlands. Uh, as far as we know, he never left Delft. We don't know anything. There's no pictures of Vermeer, no portraits that we know of. Uh, there are only 35 surviving canvases by Vermeer, no sketches. We don't know if he ever studied or with whom. It took two and a half centuries for Vermeer's work to be discovered. And I first saw these paintings, 21 of them, were gathered together at the National Gallery here for the first time in Washington. And I saw them, and it was a life-changing experience. Now, Vermeer died broke in his lifetime at the age of about 43. And uh, he died broke and crazed. He had a wife and 13 children. Mm. And there was a custom in this little town of Delft um, that when someone died, when any citizen of Delft died, the city fathers would come around and they'd collect his clothing and donate it to the poor. Vermeer's clothes were so ragged and in ruins that they simply burned them. And his wife had to give many of these paintings away to the baker and the grocer and others to pay their debts a year and a half after he died. 
Today, of the 35 known Vermeers, the view of Delft, which is to me the, the greatest piece of landscape painting I've ever seen. It's a cityscape. Today, well, in 1995, when it was brought over to the United States for the first and only time to the National Gallery, it was insured for $100 million. Wow, wow. Now, go figure. Vermeer, as far as we know, seldom. He, he died because he couldn't sell any of his work. So I, I mention this to you not to put myself anywhere near the genius or the talent of some of the great artists who've ever lived, but simply to, 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 to say that the value of a work is very often not apparent in its own time. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, look, I, it, it's consolation enough to me to know that Van Gogh's entire output and Vermeer's small output were not recognized then but are now. Now, I don't know what will happen to uh, the films I've made. You know, after I'm, I have no idea. They could be forgotten, like the work of uh, a lot of filmmakers whose work I admired. It's hard to see anywhere a Richard Brooks film anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's very hard to see an Elia Kazan film. Uh, very difficult to see a film by Carl Theodore Dreyer mm -hmm. or even Antonioni. You know, things move very quickly, and they move on to the next case. And and that's what happens if you are fortunate enough to be able to create something on this earth, to ever have it be uh, recognized in its time. Right. Well, I can't, I, you've been so generous with your time with me. Can I just ask you two more quick questions about some collaborations that you've yeah, had? Yeah, no problem. Uh, go ahead. Uh, one collaboration that fascinates me, um, and a film that fascinates me, it, it's really stayed with me, is, is Rampage. Um, and, and your collaboration with Morricone on that film. What can you tell me about that? Well, you know, I think Morricone and Bernard Herrmann were the two greatest composers of film music for me. And uh, I just called him out of the blue after I'd filmed Rampage, and I sent him uh, a work print copy, and he called me back. He spoke very little English, but he had um, an agent who spoke good English, and I went with him, and, and I met with him, and I, I really wanted a kind of a, a driving score from Morricone that would drive the film more. Um, like the score he did for a film called Investigation of a Citizen Without, uh, of, of a Citizen, uh, what, what was it called? Investigation of a Citizen uh, Under Suspicion, mm. something like that. It was a great movie. Um, and I wanted a score like that. And he didn't see the film that way. He saw the film as a tragedy. And... Uh, a tragedy not only involving the victims of this guy, who was known as the vampire killer in Northern California. Uh, he saw it as a, as a tragedy of human nature. And I kept pushing Morricone to write some, 
some more driving rhythms, but he couldn't. He wrote a very, I think one of his um, most moving and uh, deep uh, scores. And we weren't completely in agreement about it, but God knows it was a thrill to be working with him. And every time I heard, you know, something that he had written, I must, I have to be honest and tell you, I didn't think it worked. Hmm. And I kept asking for a a more um, uh, energetic piece. It was called Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. And it was about a, a police chief who was murdering women uh, in order to be able to investigate and solve their murders. It's a great film by a director called Elio Petri. And, um, but I found, I worked with Morricone at his apartment in Rome, and I, at the time he was concentrating on writing classical music, you know, for concerts and, and doing fewer scores. But uh, I must say, it, it's a time in my life that I have uh, great memories of having worked with him on that. And I changed my attitude um, about that film. And when the Weinstein Company picked it up after De Laurentiis went out of business, they originally made it, and then they just went bankrupt. And the, uh, Harvey Weinstein picked it up. And I, I actually reshot some of the film. Because my attitude about the story had changed over the years. Hmm. Well, when when I think of that score, uh, it is so tightly wound, and it autom- it unsettles you <laughs> just from the first note. Well, as all Morricone scores do, they're very vivid, very graphic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he underlined the tragedy that he mm-hmm. saw uh, in this film, much more than I did. Yeah. The, uh, and the other collaboration, and it, it, it concerns your new movie, uh, you're working with one of the great cinematographers uh, in, in Caleb Deschanel. And I'm, I'm curious about not only your collaboration with him, but your relationship with your DP uh, on your films in general. They all differ. You know, I mean... Uh, Basically, uh, The French Connection was Owen Roisman's first film. Uh, he had done another film, uh, I think that he shot in Puerto Rico or something, but I, I don't even know if it was ever released. But I met him uh, before I did The French Connection, and he was like 31 years old and had really not done anything, but he did this one feature... Uh, I don't remember the title of it, but he had done a lot of commercials in New York. I didn't want to see any of his commercials. I met him up at the equipment rental house in New York where we all used to rent cameras and stuff, and I liked him. And I told him my um, ideas for the film, and he said, great, I love that. And so I took him without ever really knowing his work. And then I did The Exorcist with him. Mm-hmm. And then there, there's several other cinematographers that I uh, had a good relationship with, like John Alonzo, who I'd worked with uh, in documentary, and then later Robbie Mueller. Uh, Caleb, uh, our, the first film we did together was The Hunted a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And 
I knew him socially, and he had great misgivings about working with me because I had had a lot of problems over the years with cinematographers, uh, a, a great many uh, disagreements. And I was known to have cut a number of them loose. And uh, so Caleb was concerned about that, but I think, you know, his curiosity about working with me uh, led him to do the hunted, and then when it came to this, uh, to uh, Killer Joe, I said, "Look, you're not going to want to do this because I'm going to do this for very little money. I'm going to make this. This is a, a very low budget film." And he said, "You know, I haven't shot that way in almost 50 years." And he said, oh, uh, "Maybe 30 years." But he, he said, "I like to give it a shot." And so he went out and we got this Araflex Alexa. Uh, digital camera, which is, I think it's the first time it was used on a feature, or one of the first times. I think the results are quite beautiful. The 35 millimeter prints are the best I've ever seen. And we're very close personal friends, Caleb and I now, and his family and mine. And he's just a wonderful human being. Mm. The, the spirit that he brings to his all of his work, you know, comes from him and who he is and he's a really wonderful decent guy one of the one of the most straightforward people i've i've met you know out here in california in the industry do you find that the digital format does it allow you a greater versatility at all to some extent yes i'll tell you where it really uh shines is in post production the prints that you're able to make from it, the latitude that you have to achieve uh, greater contrast, deeper, richer blacks, uh, more vivid colors if you want them, or desaturated colors, whatever you choose, the latitude you have is far, far greater than we ever had with 35 millimeter because 35 millimeter was subject to the vicissitudes of the printing process. The, the printers that are located in the valley, uh, the water in the valley, or anywhere else, the water that goes into the developer is changing constantly. You know, the, the little uh, amoeba that are in the water are constantly changing. And the electricity that goes to the printer is constantly fluctuating. Now, sometimes to a greater or lesser degree. But we could never produce perfect prints. Um, there would always be one reel that would come off bluish, another greenish. Uh, from shot to shot, you would get inconsistency because of the process, mm. the changing nature of the water and the electricity. But none of that exists now with digital color timing. I mean, it took me, I, I think The Exorcist, for example, I think we threw away 20 reels for every reel that I approved because it was a highly imperfect process. You had far more latitude developing a still photograph than a whole reel or 12 reels or more of a film. And all that's gone now with digital. You, The results you get are similar 
to what I you get when you're looking through the viewfinder of the camera. Mm-hmm. You're seeing a, 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 a pure image in focus. And so, yes, I think you have more latitude, but especially in post-production. The yeah. process is still very new, but I was, I'm very pleased with it. You know, 35 millimeter is now in the position of the 33 and a third LP. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's gone. Look, when they started recording uh, music, you had all this needle scratch. You know, all this cra- You had, like, some of the great voices that they recorded, like Enrico Caruso, but it was, the voice was always preceded and often drowned out by needle scratch. You know, and uh, if you could hear Caruso without any of the technical imperfections, why wouldn't you want to do that? You know, why would you still want to hear an original recording of Caruso covered with surface noise? And that's how I feel about the digital print versus the 35 millimeter. I think the digital is an evolution. Well, there is digital, and and there's there's uh, there's a increasing reliance on 3D. I mean, someone even like Scorsese says that he wants to shoot 3D from now on. God there's bless the... him. I, I I detest 3D, and I see <laughs> no reason for it. To me, uh, film and painting, any of the visual arts, is the illusion of depth in a two-dimensional image. I mean, I don't need 3D to look at a Rembrandt or a Da Vinci or a Michelangelo painting or a, a Vermeer or anybody else. I don't need 3D to look at a Picasso or a Brock Cubist painting. Mm-hmm. The illusion of depth is there, and that's part of the art of, of the visual art. So I I actually detest 3D, mm. and it frankly hurts my eyes. And I think, you know, maybe someday someone will come along and be able to tell a useful story with it, but I haven't seen it yet. It's just a gimmick to me. I kind I, of like, I, I like IMAX because of the clarity of the image, but, but not 3D. Well, there's there seems to be a wave of kind of tech, and, and movies have always been uh, a technical medium. Uh, and, and we're entering an age where three, we have 3D, we have digital, and now we have increased frame rates. Uh, that's become the big thing, the 48 or the 60 frames per second. And that's going to change the way we kind of view and perceive movies, so have they you say. Seen any of that yet? I haven't. I, I guess we're going to get our first taste of it at Christmas. So. Yeah, well, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I have no idea what that's going to look like. I, I, I guess it's in, what, The Hobbit or something? Mm-hmm. Does it excite you, though? I mean, What? The, does it excite you, this, the, the new technology as a whole? I mean, excluding 3D? What drew, me, what drew me to become a filmmaker was not anything to do with, with the, the technical uh, abilities of the equipment. Yeah. What drew me was my interest in story and character. You know, that, that, that's what did and still does draw me. And, and the ability of film to produce emotions in people, whether it be to make them laugh or cry or 
or be afraid. Mm-hmm. I, I go to film for an emotional response. And, and the, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of film from, from, from which I've received that. A, a film like Alien scared the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. And Psycho, you know, and, um, and, and a number of other films. And then uh, a simple film like Love Story. I thought I don't know if you ever saw that. Yes. No, I'm sorry. Not love story. I <laughs> a man and a woman, which is right. the best love story I've ever seen. I think it was made for a hundred thousand dollars or less, with two people and a beautiful score, and I found it very moving. And it was made for no money, and and it and there was no technical expertise all over it. Just a lovely, simple love story called A Man and a Woman. And and there are many films that have produced this emotional response in me, and that's all I look for in a film. Mm-hmm. It, me too. True with any work of art, a piece of music or a painting um, or a play. Look, you, you, you've got to be virtually a Nazi or an ex-Nazi not to cry during Death of a Salesman. Mm-hmm. No, that will always produce an emotional response in people. I agree with you. I mean, it all comes it all comes down to, no matter what the technology is, it always comes down to the most ancient of arts, and that's storytelling. Uh, exactly. It, yeah. Now, yeah. you know, Death of a Salesman was written, I guess, in the late 40s, 1940s. I haven't seen anything that has moved me more, and there was... When they made the film of it, there was no 3D in the film, no 48 fil- uh, frames per second, mm-hmm. no technical innovation whatsoever. Just well-drawn characters in a in a story that so many people could identify with, and I believe still can and do. Yeah. And that's what I want out of cinema, and which I, I get very little of. I'm not interested in the latest technical innovation. I, I admire them tremendously, but I I won't see a 3D film just because it's in 3D. Mm-hmm. Many others will, and it's just not for me. I'm I'm on board with you. <laughs> I actually I actually agree with you. But let let me tell you that. I mean, you, you've given me so much time today. I, I just want to leave you with this and tell you that you've made such a mark on my life, and your films mean a great deal to me. So this has been a great pleasure to speak with you. Well, your questions are great, Jamie, and uh, I enjoyed doing it very much. And, you know, stay in touch. I thought this was interesting. Early on in the book... You write that from an early age, my ambitions overwhelmed my abilities. And it reminded me of something that Woody Allen always says about filmmaking, which is he starts out with the, with the greatest intentions. He wants to make the greatest movie ever made. And little by little, that dream kind of, kind of dies uh, with each project. I mean, do, do you relate to that? Yeah, because you can never really... Uh, live up to your vision of it. In your mind's eye, it's always perfect. When you conceive of a film and then you write it or you somehow work on the script to get it to where you want it, then when you go out to do it, 
it begins and ends with compromise at every stage of the game. Mm-hmm. You can't always cast it perfectly <clears throat> as you may have wanted to. You um, uh, uh, can't always get the performances. Some things that played on the page don't play on the stage. This always happens, and, uh, you know, ultimately, you have to release it. Uh, you know, unlike an artist that's, who's unhappy with his work on the easel, you can't take it out and destroy it. Um, but for the most part, that's been my experience, but not in every single case. But I'm surprised, uh, I'm not surprised to hear Woody say that, but I think... You know, he's made so many wonderful pictures. Uh, to me, he, he, as far as I'm concerned, he, he is really the very best uh, uh, living American filmmaker. But I understand, too. I know Woody. I've known him for about 50 years. I understand how he feels. It, it always comes short of how you first envisioned it. Has there ever been an instance where the quality of, of one of your finished films has exceeded your expectations? No, no. Uh, you know, there have been, there've been times when it's just come closer to how it played in my mind's eye. But that that's about it. it it's never really exceeded how it plays when you're thinking about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, there was something last year when we spoke... Um, we didn't cover your your documentary experience, and what strikes me about your your narrative films is is how many of those documentary techniques you can feel in your narrative work. Um, do, do you make a conscious effort to 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 do that to give your your only, narrative films uh, only on occasion when the subject matter lends itself to that. Uh, I don't really think in terms of, of films of mine that uh, resemble the documentary style more or less. Uh, what I try to do is is choose material that I can make um, that has a certain um, uh, very similitude or reality about it. And that that even includes stuff like Bug and Killer Joe, even though they're not shot like a conventional documentary they're meant to be experienced um as though they're they're happening uh you know in real time if you well, know I what think, i mean hmm? yeah. i absolutely I mean, do a documentary technique that, you know doesn't simply imply um a shaky camera or something or you know but if Bug and Killer Joe are closer to documentaries than, than a lot of films I've made in that through the performances, the, the dialogue seems like it's, it's just made up as they're doing it, like it's, like it's just occurring. And that's what I try to get in, in everything I do. So it, it isn't necessarily documentary technique. It's... Um, an attempt at at very similitude, which means um, reality. Well, I think a big part of that, for in Killer Joe at least, uh, of achieving that effect, is the fact that you did very few takes. You did one or two takes. Well, but so I it, choose material where that can possibly take place. 
you know, material where, wherein the dialogue appears to be invented by the characters, not written by a third party. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I, ch- I tend to choose those things. I mean, I did uh, Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party on film, which I'm going to do again on the stage in January. Oh, wow. oh awesome. Uh, but uh, as, as controlled a piece of writing as that is, when it plays, uh, when it's played well, it seems as though th- this is just happening. It seems as though these people are just saying what comes into their minds off the top of their heads. Mm-hmm. And that's what I look for. I mean, certainly you, you, you can't do that with Shakespeare or George Bernard Shaw. You know, those are classical texts, uh, as are, you know, the Greek tragedies or comedies even. They're classical texts. And very often they must be said with a certain meter and a certain formality. Uh, th- that's the style in which they were written. The stuff mm-hmm. that I look for is 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 more um, contemporary. And so my approach to it—I mean, nobody would look at Killer Joe and say, "Wow, that's that looks like a documentary," but it does play with a certain sense of reality about it, and that's. That's what I go for. Not documentary, reality. The mm-hmm. documentary films that I made early um, were all uh, about ongoing stories. Uh, and um, so uh, they were invented on the spot. You know, there was no scripting of them until afterwards. And the ideal documentary, the kind kind that are made today are ones where there's no scripting at all, just mm-hmm. assembly. And uh, it, when I was doing documentaries, there always had to be some guy narrating it, you know, and telling you what the hell was going on and often what to think about what was going on. Uh, but that's changed considerably. So that now, you know, the very best documentaries just capture actual life as it's being lived. And I know that as a as a narrative filmmaker, you want to capture that same feeling. Like the yes, story that, is evolving. that's it. That's why, I, you know, Killer Joe and Bug, even though uh, Bug has more and Killer Joe has a few surrealistic elements, um, they're meant to be played... Uh, in the most realistic possible terms, and that's documentary. But is it difficult to allow for happy accidents to take place? No, no it's not difficult. I look for them. You you mm-hmm. hope and pray for them to occur, because when they do occur, it usually is because uh, either the actor or uh, the camera crew or the rest of the crew, but primarily the actors are so attuned and so into their roles that they can invent certain things or you can take place of certain things that just happen in the frame that you didn't plan. Mm-hmm. That's part of what I always look for and hope to achieve, and that it often happens. But it only happens out of... Uh, out of uh, 
real preparation, you know, really uh, being totally um, involved and into what you're doing so that the accidents can play a part in that. There are accidents that occur sometimes that don't work, and Mm -hmm. you just have to do it again. Um, Before we get into a a few of your films, um, I wanted to ask about the the process of actually writing this book. Um, I mean, you you delve very honestly Mm. into your career in film. Um, Did you make any um, discoveries about yourself in the process of writing this? I must have done so, but I'm not aware of them, frankly. I mean, what I tried to do was just recall certain events that would come into my mind's eye, and I would write about them um, for as long as I could remember the details, and then I'd stop, and then the next day or a few hours later, something else would pop into my mind's eye. I'd start to write about that until I reached some kind of conclusion, and then... uh, eventually maybe come back to the other stuff. So I kept leapfrogging back and forth through various memories as they occurred to me. I would just Mm -hmm. sit down and wait for inspiration, and some days it wouldn't come. But I wrote the book in longhand, in moleskin books. Mm. Um, Cool. There are 12 moleskin books, all written in longhand in, in various places, you know, at home, on the road, in airplanes, in restaurants, uh, uh, while I was doing something else. It took me three years, and I wrote it in longhand. And Mm. as I say, the memory, I would get as far as I could with the memories, and then occasionally, uh, after going somewhere else, maybe leapfrogging 20 or 30 or more years, I would be able to go back to something and flesh it out, or even remember it differently. And on some occasions... Um, you know, notably uh, with Bill Blatty, uh, I interviewed a, a number of the people that I worked with and, and tried to get their take. A lot of the yeah. times, some uh, the, some of the people I talked to were so off the mark in their memories, I know, <laughs> that I simply just avoided them and just wrote them as I recalled them. But there are, in any... In anybody's experiences with other people, they're going to be different memories. It's like sitting around a campfire, a group of people around a campfire, and each person sees the flames from a different angle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, yeah. you, you see what's in the woods back there behind the fire, and I see uh, what's in a crop of trees that are closer so you remember the woods and I remember the trees. Or somebody to my left or to your right uh, saw a deer and, and, the, and nobody else did. You know, So everything is viewed from different perspectives. <laughs> if I were to try and simply collate all the memories from the various perspectives, you, you couldn't write a book. The, mm. the, book is, the book is a product of the writer's memory. Speaking of memory, I think we all reach an age where we look back and we acknowledge certain mistakes and regrets. At at the age that you are, um, is there anything you would 
you would really like to have told the younger William Friedkin? No, I mean, th- this is a memoir. It- it's not a teaching tool. It's a memoir. It's not, uh, you can't correct what what is gone. You know, there is a line that I use toward the end of the book that came from uh, the novelist L.P. Hartley, who wrote The Go-Between, and it was mm-hmm. a line that Harold Pinter uh, told me about, and then I read The Go-Between, and the line is, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. just the way it is. You, you can't go, you know, there are no erasers in, in one's life, you know, and there's no piece of chalk that will allow you to, to recreate. That's it. it. Now, I just, I tried to write the book as honestly as I could remember it and not spare myself uh, or make myself look better or, or even worse than I imagined. These... The book just contains the memories that I have as I recall them. A big part of the interest of this book, too, is is reading the, your perception of the, the reaction to a lot of the films that you've made. And quite a few of them have uh, scandalized audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are there films in your life that, that you have felt that about? I don't think I've ever been scandalized by anything other than what the government does on a daily basis. Virtually every government we've had since I was a child. The, the only things that scandalize me are the, the actions of politicians after they reach high office. And my observation is simply that often, mo- most often, I would imagine, Good people run for high elective office, and by the time they achieve it, they they begin to think that uh, if they're not returned to power or if they're not maintained in office, everything's going to go to hell. I mean, th- this is the theme of, of so many of Shakespeare's chronicles. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what happens to people who uh, achieve power and then seek to maintain it. So those are the only things that scandalize me. Uh, uh, right now, I mean, you know, it, there's a plethora of that. And I feel like we're uh, we talked a, a lot last time about uh, the notion of apathy, and there being an apathy uh, among people today that probably wasn't present 30, 40 years ago. But I, I read it about may have the, been. I, I don't yeah. know. It may have been. I mean, uh, what are people going to do after all? I mean, um, America was a country that was born out of revolution. The revolutionary spirit is is over and gone because basically, for so many people, things do go well and smoothly. And so you, you really don't have people out in the street. There was a mm-hmm. time... The Vietnam War, for example, when people were in the street, mm-hmm. and and uh, I see similar times now with these misadventures in Iraq and Afghanistan that would back in the seventies, sixties, and seventies, people would be in the streets daily, constantly, and with some of the activities of government, primarily, you know, what was going on during the Nixon administration. 
But there are equally disturbing things happening now right. that don't mm-hmm. seem to be driving people into the streets. Uh, there was recently a Time magazine article about the, the millennial generation. It's in the current issue right. of Time. Mm-hmm. That, that most of the young people today are more, cons- you know, they're more self-involved. They're more involved with the social network, but, but on a totally frivolous level, not on a level of involvement. Now, is that apathy? I, I don't know. I just know that things have changed. Previous generations have made things in America better for the young people. They're not perfect, certainly, nor will they ever be. Uh, because these are all human endeavors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet there are things happening today in the world, actions of our government and our country that have been going on for quite some time, that in the 60s and 70s people w- would have caused massive protests. You're right. Um, I want to actually, because I was hoping you'd bring this up, because I had a feeling just reading your book and, and watching your movies all this time. You know, there's a great thing that, like I said, the last 10 years, you know, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Um, it's a bumper sticker or a slogan that you've, you know, that we've all heard. Mm-hmm. And there are things going on, I mean, just this week alone, that are, you know, if you really think about it, horrifying, even on the surface. But the big story of the week, though, is Yahoo buys a, a, a Tumblr for $1.1 billion. That's the well, big the big story. story of the week, though, of course, is uh, you know the tornado. Oh in yeah, the oh, that, don't, that's a, no. I don't get me and wrong. And that's that a too. that's a national disaster mm-hmm. that's unavoidable. Right. It's just unavoidable, and it makes you think we have no real control over our lives. True. None. True. You're you're lucky to draw the next breath. Mm-hmm. That that's how much we're creatures of fate. Uh, you know, and now you take that action of that, you know, natural catastrophe mm-hmm. and equate it with something like the accidents of birth that take place all over the world. Right. Imagine if you were born in Libya at this time, or in Darfur, mm-hmm. or in Somalia, or in Haiti, or in places where people have no hope, and the only thing they did wrong was get born in the wrong place Mm -hmm. at the wrong time. Right. So there are just so many things we can do nothing about. Right. And just be thankful, you know, and hopeful that it's not going to happen to us. With all the charity in the world, the the natural disasters are unavoidable. Right. And mm-hmm. and uh, I, I was in, you know, New Orleans a year ago and and, and after that and you know, th- but those things still have not been totally addressed. That's that's what gets you angry. Mhm. And that's what absolutely should scandalize people. Um but but going back to how this relates to filmmaking, you read of the reaction to something like The Exorcist, um, where where people were losing their minds <laughs> over the power of this film. Do you think it's possible in this kind of jaded uh, generation of today for a film to have that level of effect anymore? I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I, I don't see any that are being made. I don't see any films that uh, even try to touch... 
let's say, the outer edges of experience. Uh, whether I mean, most of the films that are made in this country are just pure fantasy that, that don't even have a, a metaphor connected to them that you can latch on to uh, and, and be, uh, be moved by. Uh, most of the films today are, I mean, films have settled very comfortably, not only American films, but the stuff out of Europe that, you, you, that used to be really provocative and both in style, technique, and subject matter. I don't see that anymore, except rarely. There's this Iranian filmmaker whose name I don't even recall. He made a separation. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, was a powerful and important film. And it was, you know, about uh, the breakup of a family in Iran. And it was very strong. Now, it's not about demonic possession or something, but that that had a powerful effect on me uh, and many people, that film. So there's a handful of filmmakers, but not on the regular basis that I recall from the 60s and 70s, nor Mm -hmm. is the pure entertainment today on the level of the films that I recall from the 40s and 50s. Today, you know, I'm frankly mostly not interested in in the pictures that are made today with rare exception with rare exception i'll see something that i find you know deeply moving and affecting mm-hmm. but that's and just yet, me in my taste yeah. but you know most people are totally satisfied with the popular uh, films of today so it's a discussion in a void i mean these films make zillions of dollars you know, well, I I think they make zillions of dollars because because they don't challenge us in any way. Yeah, I, I don't right. I don't think people necessarily want right. to be challenged. Yes, but and I I don't blame them. There there are enough challenges in real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there just are enough challenges in real life that that fantasy is something that that is sought out by audiences today. Pure entertainment. Um, and it's a steady diet of that, and I, I'm not uh, uh, complaining about it. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. You can't talk about these films as as being failures in any way. No, not even creatively, yet, though. Not even the, as creative failures. No, because the public is the judge of that. Right. Okay. The the public votes mm-hmm. with their dollars. You know, just as they vote at the polls. They they vote for if if the public thought that the films today were uh, you know a load of bollocks they they wouldn't be going to them true and they're going in 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 great numbers but but to fewer films mm-hmm. mm. there was a time when for example the Hollywood studios made over forty films a year and they all uh, even the B pictures achieved some kind of an audience. And they and they cost little enough the smaller films that they they would return a profit. Today it's like a large stakes uh, gambling procedure. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just high stakes gambling. You, you they spend three hundred three hundred million dollars on a film like it's chump change, and 
the film goes out and does a billion or more dollars, and that that's what it's become. But obviously, there are people who find this stuff vastly entertaining, and I don't think they're idiots or something. Right, right. It is it is what we call a change in the zeitgeist, and I don't blame people for wanting to simply be entertained today. I don't blame them at all for that. Well, let me ask you a question then. Um, I mean, I agree with you there, but what if some what if someone offered you to make one of these movies? I'm, well, like what? Like, all right, let me say someone came to you and offered you one of these comic book movies. Would you do it? Which one? Um, let, let, let me say that. Like the, if someone came up to you and said, I want you to do Mr. Freakin', we would love you to do the newest Spider-Man movie. No way. You, no, I mean, of course not. Okay. No, I was just curious. No, I, I don't even want to see it. Okay, no, I understand that. <laughs> um, I was just curious, though. I was just curious. No, but I have other things that interest me that I'd rather do. Right. You know, I... Rather than waste my time doing something like that, I'd rather read Proust again, mm-hmm. which I try to do every day. But that's me. That's not. That's not something I'm recommending. Right. That's not my recipe for uh, success or or for the future of entertainment. I, I just have no interest in that stuff. Mm-hmm. When I look at your career, I, I look at a movie like The Exorcist, I look at a movie like Cruising, and they got through the ratings board, and yet Killer Joe did not. Is is, is that just the changing MPAA, or is it a yes. more puritanical? That, that's the, no, it's, it's not that there is a more puritanical society. It's a change in the MPAA. I mean, you know, I'm remaking my film Sorcerer. I'm redoing, not remaking it, I'm remastering it for the digital world, mm-hmm. and it's going to have its uh, world premiere at the Venice Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on August 29th, where I'm getting the uh, Golden Lion, which is the highest achievement award. Wow. Uh, congratulations. congratulations. Uh, thank you. And uh, they're going to run, on my birthday, on August 29th, they're going to run the new digital version of Sorcerer. Uh, um, I don't know how many people are going to be interested in seeing that. There there seems to be a great underground interest in it. Whether that can translate to overground, I have no way of knowing. But I have an attachment to a lot of the films I made to try and keep them preserved which is not to say that I really think they're part of the new zeitgeist. I don't, you know. But those the films news... could influence future filmmakers. I won't lie to you, um, Sorcerer has been, is probably my favorite film of yours. I appreciate that. Um, my, my point about that in terms of the ratings board is I looked at the print the other, recently there have been two screenings mm-hmm. of it, at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and at the Cinematheque here in Los Angeles, where where they had retrospectives of my films. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, amazed to see that those films, without one frame cut in either one, those got a PG, that film got a PG rating. Mm. Today it would be at least an R, even though there's nothing in it. Right. You know, there's there's no sexuality, no language problem, uh, no oh, no violence to speak of, or very little. It's all totally underplayed in those areas. Mm-hmm. And it got a PG, but it's 
probably the most intense film I've ever made. Mm-hmm. And it got a PG because the ratings board then was not rating intensity. Today they are. I mean, in my book, you'll see the passage that was described to me by Tracy Letts when mm-hmm. he appeared before the ratings board. I wouldn't do it. I was directing an opera in Vienna at the time, but if I was free as a bird, I wouldn't have gone to that appeal because I know what they are. They've become censors. And that's mm. not how the rating board was conceived, nor is it how it can do the most good, you know, by being censors. But right. that's what they are. When they started the ratings board, it was simply to be a guide to parents about uh, what was contained in the material uh, uh, of this or that film so that the parent could decide if the, a child could see it. That's all. Mm-hmm. And they didn't tell you, don't bring your child. They didn't put uh, uh, draconian ratings on it so that it would, would become censorship. But today, that's what the NC-17 is. And that's because of gradual evolution of the ratings board into a censorship board, which is what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if you notice, the major studios will never get uh, an NC-17 because they control the board. The board works for them. The board works for the MPAA. So it's only the independent companies that it will occasionally draw an NC-17. It's like the board is flexing a muscle to show that they can do this. But the major studios are, have films that are just replete with violence and sexuality and language, and they draw an R at the worst. Some of them draw a PG. And the argument is, well, they're not real. That's the, that was the ratings board answer to Tracy Letts about Killer Joe. We viewed this as being real. And, um, mm. and uh, it, it, it's not a fantasy. Like, And they quoted Saw. They said, if... The quote was, if some guy dies in Saw, if there's a bunch of killings in Saw, we don't take it seriously, and we don't give it an NC-17. Because we know it isn't real. And and so Let's asks him, you mean because the violence in Killer Joe seems real to you, because it's effectively performed. Uh, you, You find that more troublesome than even more graphic violence in something like Batman or uh, the girl with the dragon tattoo. And they said, yeah. Mm. That, and that's what you're dealing with. The original board, as it was conceived, at the, and it was first conceived at the time of the exorcist, um, the, that picture got an R with no cuts. Today, it, wouldn't, it would probably not get released in any similar form. But it gets, and it's being re-released this year, because it's the 40th anniversary, and it'll be back in theaters, and then a a brand new Blu-ray with two hours of extras that have never been seen. Um, But uh, it it won't get an NC-17, probably, because it's entered, you know, it's it's entered the landscape. Mm -hmm. And it would be, it would be highly... Uh, 
self-destructive, I think, if the board looked at the... But if any film ever deserved an NC-17, it would be The Exorcist. If any film ever deserved... At the time, it was an X. And we all thought The Exorcist was going to get an X. But it was the first rating board, and they were extremely liberal, and their mission was, as I've stated it to you, to simply provide a warning to parents mm -hmm. about what was contained in it. Mm. But I, I do think that the ultimate taboo in the U.S. anyway is still sexuality. And with cruising, you portrayed a world of very extreme sexuality. Did you mm -hmm. not run into any ratings problems there? Yeah, of course we did. And uh, oh. I actually shot 40 minutes of pure pornography which I put into the film and showed it to the ratings board, uh, knowing that they'd cut all or most of it, and I'd be left with the story that I wanted to tell. But I was able to shoot this pure pornography because of my relationship with the guys who were in the scenes and the people who ran this private club, the mine shaft. Mm -hmm. So I just shot everything that went on there, and showed it to the head of the ratings board, and he, of course, meticulously had it slashed, mm -hmm. you know, shot by shot, and I was left with the story that I wanted to tell. Right, right. Um, and some of it, you know, some of the extreme sexuality even got into the picture, but not all, by no means all. Well, I, yeah, I mean, you watch that movie and you feel like it, it, it pulls no punches uh, mm -hmm. the way it is. Um, yeah, well, I'm, you should have that's... seen the way I showed it to them. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, many people just would not want to see that, straight or gay. M many people would not want to look at what I uh, originally shot. And I realize that I, it was a game um, in the sense that I didn't take the ratings board seriously at that time, nor do I now, as a really serious arbiter of taste. First of all, they have no legal standing whatsoever. Secondly, uh, they're a tool of the MPAA, uh, which is the six or seven major, say, seven major studios. Uh, third, they operate in a totally arbitrary fashion. There's no guidelines or rules, you know, like for driving on the road, you have mm -hmm. to follow these rules. If you break them, you can get a speeding ticket or, or worse or something. Uh, there's just nothing like that that the board has. It, they, these, an anonymous group of people sit around and arbitrarily put out these uh, ratings. And it, it really, for the most part, is censorship, which is a word that they hate. But that's what they are. They're censors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you look at, going back to cruising real quick, when you look at that film uh, today... I don't. Uh, I don't look at I don't. I don't. I don't revisit any of my films except to make a new uh, DCP of them. Uh, and that's you, on a purely technical level. I don't sit down and look at any of my films. Well, that, that's one of the most fascinating chapters for me when you deal with cruising, um, in particular your relationship with Pacino in that film. And I was just wondering how you view that performance uh, today. 
Well, I don't think it's a perfect performance. Uh, there, there are very few that exist in in uh, the, in the history of cinema. Uh, but I think, you know, by and large, he's a very effective presence in the film. I don't think it's by any means um, perfection. And, and but I'm not saying that that's his fault either. Uh, I, I had a lot of trouble zeroing in and focusing on that story. And I don't think that helped him much either. You talked about your difficulty with that material. And then I remember uh, I read that from your book and, and from elsewhere that when you were doing Rampage, um, your view on capital punishment, did, did it change in the course of making it that It changed movie? to some extent. Uh, whereas when I was much younger, I, I believed totally that the death penalty was not only pointless, but a kind of uh, societal murder. And uh, over the years, and with the increase in, in casual violence that's occurred in, in our country, uh, by casual I mean it's no surprise anymore when somebody goes out and 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 shoots up a theater or sets off a, a, a bomb at a marathon or any of these things are no longer uh oh my god how could this ever happen um uh, my view has changed i believe there are certain people who have gone willfully or unwillfully so outside societal bounds that there's no point in keeping them alive in many ways it's more of a punishment. Uh, you know, in, in many ways, the, it, it's really been shown that violent behavior to that extent is, uh, is a DNA problem. And I, it's also been shown that it can be treated. But what is the point? You know, you can, you, there are studies of the brain, and, which I saw in their earliest stages when I was doing Rampage, and now they're in a very advanced stage. And they show that the, the brains of serial killers are different in composition than the brains of so-called normal people. So there are, there are cases in terms of violent human behavior where uh, it, it's really not the fault of these people. They're... They are somehow victims of a chemical imbalance in the brain. And, and I have seen that that can be treated with uh, medication and therapy. But I'm thinking, why? You know, when somebody willfully goes out like, like this woman Jody Arias, or when somebody attempts to, when somebody kills a police officer or a baby, something like that. Or what O.J. Simpson did uh, to his wife and, and Ron Goldman. What is the point of keeping them alive? For what purpose? Return them to society for what? I mean, society hangs on a very slender thread. And, you know, to, to keep everything in balance with all of the madmen in the world who would think nothing of blowing up the rest of the world in the hopes that they would be spared, with all of that, I think there are just cases. I'm not talking about somebody who, 
you know, wigs out and and in a in a completely spontaneous act hurts or kills somebody and and they're, they they lose control momentarily. I'm talking about serial killers, uh, mm-hmm. vi- violent dictators, and people like that. Uh, Osama bin Laden, he should have been executed, of course. Once they know precisely that he is the guy behind all this stuff. I don't believe in indiscriminate capital punishment. No, not at all. I think there has to be pretty much absolute proof. But in the case of, like, uh, Casey Anthony, I think it was absolutely proven that she killed her baby and lied about it. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah. I would have would not have lost one wink of sleep if they had sent that woman to the electric chair or the gas chamber or whatever the hell else they do. You go out and you kill your own baby? Well, yes, there's something chemically unbalanced about her brain that with the proper treatment at certain institutions, they can cure. But... I don't believe that that's a message for society. Go out, kill your child, you, you're, you're crazy, you're wigged out, but we can fix that. So if you go out and kill your child, just come back in and we'll give you some uh, drugs and a little therapy and you'll be fine. Right. No, I, I, that's where my viewpoint changed from the documentary I made that helped to save a man's life. The, the crump. Uh, yes, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry, you had a question about about one movie in particular. I had a question, and I I don't want to get into trouble for it because it's not mentioned at all in your book. And I was just curious. Um, a deal of the century. I just recalled very little about it. That's all. Okay. I tried to write a chapter. Okay. I wrote about four or five pages, but my recollections of it were neither clear enough nor uh, deep enough mm-hmm. to warrant inclusion. I okay, I understand that. I just I, I always thought it was a really good, very clever black. Oh comedy. no, I like the picture. Good, good. I like it. I, I, I I'm not uh, uh, ashamed of it or anything like that. I think it's terrific. Mm-hmm. So do in I. In my opinion, I just didn't remember enough about mm-hmm. its whole, um, you know, the, the the whole manner in which it came about. Right. Ended up that. And the same with The Guardian. I didn't have anything in the book about... And the same about all of my affairs and relationships. <laughs> I wrote about them all. And then I... Fe- no one asked me to take them out. I just felt that, you know, I could not reflect the viewpoint of the other people involved. Right, right. Okay. And in all of these relationships, it really takes two people mm-hmm. to make them fail or succeed. Right. So uh, I was not prepared to write a book where I'm getting somebody else's viewpoint in contradiction to my own. Mm-hmm. I wrote about what I could remember and flesh out to at least, uh, and in some cases, a smaller degree than others. Okay. I always I always want to ask you this question. This is kind of off topic a little bit from your own films, but... Um, your uh thinking about your great uh interview with with Fritz Lang um I, I was always curious did you ever have an opportunity to spend time with with Hitchcock no uh, i met him on you know like two occasions that are mentioned in my book okay and okay. i never sought him out you know uh i didn't I, I think that hitchcock 
my observations of him and what I've read about him are that he, he had very little patience for other filmmakers, especially young filmmakers, unless they were fawning, unless right. they, you know, wanted to uh, slobber all over him about what a great man he was. And he is a, he was a, is a great filmmaker. He's a textbook. People don't need to go to film school. They just need to watch Hitchcock's movies, and you'll see how films are made. Um, so I, I haven't asked you about your work in opera uh, yet either. It, do you, is there? An, I know you're doing the play in, in January, but is there another opera in your future? Are I'm you anxious uh, yes, to return? I've got three operas that I'm considering now in three different countries, and I, I'm well, two countries but three different opera companies, and I'm wondering, I don't know which one I'll be able to do yet. I won't be able to do anything else in film or opera this year because I have so many other, I have to make the DCP of uh, Sorcerer, which will take me two months. Then I'm going in August to Venice, and then uh, in October will be the first uh, uh, screening of the Exorcist Theatrical at the Smithsonian on October 30th, and then The Exorcist is going to be re-released in theaters and uh, and then subsequently uh, in digital uh, at home. So I've, I've got to work on all those versions and then go into uh, rehearsals of the birthday party in January. So wow. I am looking at a, at a lot of at a lot of different um, stories, but <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to get to them this year. Well, uh, I let me tell you, we are so crazy about you. Uh, yeah. we, we love you absolutely. And, well, it's uh, very kind yeah. of you guys. You yeah. got a great, you got a great show. Thank I'm you. happy to do it. You know, and so you know, feel free to call on me, and whenever we can get a mutually convenient time, I'll do it. All right, great. All righty, my friend. Right. Thank, thank you thank so you. much, Jamie and Jerry. Thank you guys, and and thanks to all the guys that blog with you. <laughs> 